our turnaround time has been fairly decent this week. Like two days ago, you were recording yeah. with TrickShot726. If you're listening to this, thank you for joining the podcast, by the way. Good old Javi. But now we are back again with this duo shtick that doesn't seem to be quite the hit because we are no War TV 14, TrickShot 726, Deanna Star 7, Forgotten Tactic, or Moose the Creator. So I, I see how it is, audience. It's okay. I mean, I can't blame them. <laughs> if I had to just listen to myself talk endlessly, I probably wouldn't be too jazzed either. I'd probably be pretty cheesed. everyone and welcome to yet another episode of the animators assembled podcast it's uh once again daniel and i uh project 422 films and stealthabot as always feel free to check out our social media handles for our own personal slash professional social media as well as our combined platform on instagram for animators assembled hell yeah and our combined youtube channel project stealthabot uh, feel free to join us in the Amber's Assembled Discord server, which is kind of the whole point of us making this podcast, in a sense, to bring together the stop-motion animation community a little bit, or as best as we can. All that information is available in different links in different places, depending on where you're listening to this podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, our personal social media handles are on screen, and we have links in the description below. If you're tuning in from Spotify or another audio podcast, we do have links in our pages, I believe. You got right? the link tree, the clickable element. Yeah, so... I gotta to... say, man, you're getting really good at the introductions. Thank you. I mean, I've kind of had a lot of practice at this point. Look at it's that. It's kind of like falling down the stairs. You kind of have a rhythm for it by the time you're halfway through. <laughs> you just let it happen. You don't even, you don't even stop. <laughs> There's a point in which if you if you miss the first step, you just know what's going to yeah. happen. So you have like a ball formation. You just clutch mm -hmm. your legs and hope for the best. <laughs> this is the way I go down. Literally. Gravity. <laughs> <laughs> How, okay but yeah so <laughs> i i have one more question asked before we segue how many times out of 10 did that happen to you this week falling down the stairs <laughs> yeah i mean it's happened a lot over the course of my lifetime but i don't think it's actually happened to me that's in a, a good that's while a good thing. that's a good thing this isn't an open invitation for my my uh mind and body to suddenly make me fall down the stairs <laughs> yeah, it just the gives next available <laughs> opportunity i just it's like i'll be right back so, you just hear it like in the So in Michael, the, uh, what background. do you do on your uh, spare time? I fall down the stairs. Uh, uh, professionally, of course. Yeah, professionally. Uh, it's, a, it's an Olympic sport. <laughs> it's the only sport I qualify yeah. for. <laughs> I made the team. Finally, right? It's the it's the only sport that you can qualify for with a bachelor's degree. Uh, and it, you, <laughs> you can be really good at it. Yeah, right? Um, But yeah. Feel free to check out all of our available social media links and connect with us in any way you can. Um, all that information is available in a bunch of different spots, depending on where you're listening to this. With that all said and done, today we are recording another duo episode. And this time we're kind of piggybacking off of the episode with none other than TrickShot726. And we were talking a lot about crafting your image in Stamosh Animation with that episode. Feel free to check that out. I assume it's available now. With all the guest episodes we've had so far, we've been talking about various components of the production process. 
And outside of our reactionary episodes of duos between Daniel and I just kind of talking about the podcast itself, the previous duo episode, we talked about social networking. This time, we're going to be talking about resourcefulness and how that ties into creating content and how you have to kind of work within the parameters of limitations a little bit. So this is kind of new for this uh, podcast, but I thought I'd try it out. This is very much a trial and error experience, which was something we said a lot in the previous episodes too. But filmmaking in any form factor usually requires working within some kind of limitations. And in the stop motion space that we're operating in, those tend to be around the resources you have in order to build the world that your project is taking place in. This episode is going to focus on the different ways that Daniel and I have personally been able to problem solve, as well as transform our means to tell a story through this homemade Hollywood movie medium we got going on here. Obviously, our experiences might be very different from how yours might be. You might not be able to apply everything that we say here, but hopefully at the very least, it's educational and entertaining for you. And uh, thank you in advance for tuning in for this podcast. So... There are a lot of bullet points on this outline. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, but we're going to try our best here. It's just like falling down the stairs. You just got to fall right into it. Uh, <laughs> so there are different things that need to be gathered in any kind of filmmaking form. And particularly in stop motion animation, it's kind of like a hunting and gathering type deal more so because you have to kind of come up with all the different resources on your own. You don't have a production company or a budget or anything God, that really would be nice. behind you to make that happen. You don't have a casting crew to kind of help you accrue those things for you. So within the scene and video context, there are figures that are your subjects or characters. You'd have different props for them to interact with, and you have uh, places for them to inhabit, different uh, set pieces or locations whether you have them practically or through chroma key, digital means. Beyond that internal, in-the-frame aspect, there's equipment behind the scenes that help capture the scene. So you have to have at least one camera. You might have more than one. Uh, and you have to have some kind of system or device to mount said camera or prop it up or move it around if you have that sort of camera work at play. You need to have some kind of lighting because you don't want to be shooting completely under the dark. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Uh, <laughs> and naturally, you need some kind of setup for your setup. You need like a tabletop, a surface, or a designated area. And you have to make use of the physical space itself. And you have to manage how much space you're taking up with all the stuff that's not currently on camera. As well as how much room you need for what is on camera. I know I said a lot, but... From that list, do you have a favorite and least favorite aspect of this filmmaking process for on-camera and off-camera when it comes to assessing the current resources you have and acquiring more prior to making a project? I mean, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't the action figures, you know, because first and foremost, they're there. You know, it's like that's how most of my ideas are formulated, too. You get you mess around with action figures, and if they're really a kick-ass figure, you're not gonna want to put it down. So you're you're posing these figures at the expense of production, and that happens more often than I'd like. But I guess you can say that that's my favorite part. So that's your favorite thing on camera. What about your favorite thing off camera? Um, that is a good. One. 
I like working with the dioramas a lot. Like I make the dioramas for my videos and just messing with them is really fun for me. Whether that's looking for reference images online or videos and tutorials on how to make a 112 scale diorama to work for said set. Like I love that process. It's so much fun and it really really gets the creativity gears working. So the long story short, that figgy game do be strong. Plastic crack is a very serious addiction and uh, get some help if you are falling victim to it. I need help. <laughs> um, just kidding. Uh, don't do drugs. Stay in school. Get your bachelor's degrees, guys. Uh, <laughs> I kind of agree. I love collecting different things uh, throughout my childhood. I kind of got this from my pop-up a little bit. I loved Hess vehicles, like the Hess trucks and their mini vehicles too like the bigger playset ones and then they had the smaller collectors ones i loved collecting harry potter wands obviously transformers was the origin point for my youtube channel and that collecting hobby became the focus of my stylish animation at first and then i dived into the marvel legends and the superhero collecting so i love collecting stuff long story short i clearly have an issue <laughs> The action figure side of things, the exact same reasoning that Daniel said too. I love playing with my action figures in order to come up with different ideas. And that sort of, they're characters in my work. I look at my action figures as opportunities to tell stories with different actors in a sense. Because they have a likeness. I, I prefer the realistic looking figures over the more cartoonish kind. Because they look like real people and you might be able to utilize them for characters beyond just the the names that they're packaged with, you're able to kind of mix and match different parts sometimes and go beyond just the fan-made storytelling that we typically tackle and do more with those characters. Uh, so I really love collecting action figures. That's the most fun for me. I love seeing different figures that are made and realizing the storytelling potential and the opportunities that might come with that figure existing. Definitely that's a fun part of it, uh, on camera at least. On the off-camera side of things, I completely forgot to mention... Head um, swaps? Yes, on the figure side, there are absolutely <laughs> head swaps. Um, and I love messing around with head swaps. That's one of the best parts of doing this. You might be able to create a brand new character because of a head swap opportunity. 100%, yeah. And that's a lot of fun. With live-action filmmaking, which I've been fortunate enough to be able to do, it's very tough finding actors and finding talent to uh, work with on screen because scheduling is an issue you might not be able to get them to read certain parts and you also have to work with the people that you know in person you can't really reach out to people that might be a really good fit but they're a long distance away without using some sort of digital cop-out like oh they're they're communicating through a phone call or a, a video face-to-face -face chat so live action is a little bit difficult because of that but with figures accessible to you at all times that kind of makes the process a little easier and having voice actor talent from all over the world be available for that too it makes the filmmaking process a little bit easier so i love the characters to tell stories with and i might be able to get more actors from different places to represent those characters and bring them to life off camera i completely forgot to mention the fact that there's computers and editing equipment in the mix. You might have a software that you're using in order to film your project. Some people use Dragonframe or Stop Motion Studio or in my particular case, iMotion. Sometimes editing software in and of itself like DaVinci Resolve, HitFilm Express, Adobe Premiere Pro, so many other video editing softwares for computers as well as on mobile 
devices such as QCOP Pro or iMovie. So that's a whole other resource in and of itself you have to track down. Finding those as well, I like when there are different programs that you can kind of interact with, although that's a little bit more of an editing question rather than a filmmaking question. Uh, from the filmmaking side of things off camera, I really like the different mounts that I can come up with for the camera, finding different places to put the camera. Sometimes I have the camera in and of itself resting on something. And then other times I have a designated tripod or I might have like a little custom made Lego vehicle dolly, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later on with another question on this outline. But I love figuring out different camera angles and different places and perspectives to have the camera view things from. So finding different ways to situate the camera in and of itself is a lot of fun, especially if you have like a phone camera, which is a different form factor from a camcorder or a DSLR camera. Um, Sweet. How about your least favorites? What are your least favorite things to work with? Oh, man. On Where do I start? Uh... I could start if you're not ready to start. I am not the biggest fan of buying or making sets because it's not that I'm lazy. It's that trying to find good materials to work with is not always the easiest thing. When you're in a financial situation like mine at times, you can... I know I talked a lot about trying to buy different figures and characters, and I always see that as more of an opportunity than trying to buy set pieces. Because financially speaking, they cost a lot of money to um, either pay for the materials to build them. Or commission one. Even if you have the materials in your own home, you still spent money in order to get those materials. And it's time and energy that you're spending as well trying to make that happen. Trying to get them commissioned for you is paying someone else for their time and talent and materials. So it's very expensive. And also when you have these big set pieces and dioramas, it's very difficult to store them in different places. So not only is my financial situation a little bit of a tough thing to kind of work around as an aspiring, although amateur filmmaker, but also trying to figure out where the hell to put things when you don't really have a whole lot of living space to work with isn't necessarily the most ideal situation either. I didn't used to have a dedicated filming space that was all too big. Now I have one a little bit more so because I have a loft bed. Underneath that loft bed is my filmmaking space. But I didn't always have that, so I would have to have like a folding table and a really small little setup. And I would have to take it down every single time I was done working with it because I just wouldn't have enough room for anything else that I needed to do. So dioramas have always been a little bit of a challenge for me, both financially and physically in terms of space and trying to do them. I'm not the most artistic person when it comes to craftsmanship and doing stuff by hand. I'm very fortunate for uh, Deanna. She's been a very big help for me trying to create different little set pieces and stuff and helping me find little pieces of furniture and other things to help furnish my sets to kind of make them feel a little bit more authentic and real. But that's kind of my least favorite thing to do. And plus the other thing too is that... Um, Sometimes you just have to chroma key in a background because there's no way in hell you can build certain things. And having a singular set, it's like, oh, you might have a city street. Everything has to take place in a city street. Or, oh, you have a living room. Everything has to take place in a living room. Whereas chroma key backgrounds, what if you want to have something that takes place in the sky and you don't really have a whole lot of room for a full-on set piece or diode to do that. And also just in terms of space, having a chroma key set up takes up less room than having a bunch of different individual set pieces off camera I, I guess lighting 
I haven't always been the best when it comes to investing in lighting. I've tried to buy different lamps, uh, try to have different color temperature lamps, try to get different color lighting, um, have the whole RGB color scheme type deal. But again, that's very expensive and it can also be really difficult trying to find space for all of that and a place to plug it all in or batteries. It can also make things really hot too. So it's not the most uh, comfortable thing to work with either for off-camera stuff. How about you? I've talked way too much for right now. So for on-camera, I would immediately go to figures that just aren't working well enough for the scene. And every animator knows exactly what I'm talking about. If you've ever animated anything having to do with action figures, chances are you've dealt with a figure falling over. You've dealt with a slight bit of movement with an action figure because a, a joint was loose or whatever that made it shift its position from its the previous shot throws the whole thing off kilter and i hate and it and sometimes it you don't have figure stands or mm -hmm. like sticky tack for the feet yep uh so you really kind of have to hope and pray that gravity won't make your characters fall down the metaphorical right. stairs right <laughs> and i hate having to reset the entire scene just because of a slight angle or movement that was altered by an accident. Sometimes you're not even deliberately trying to touch the figure or move the figure. Sometimes all you got to do is stomp your feet really heavily and the desk is not having it. So it begins the, the whole earthquake scenario that happens to the setup and it sucks. Uh, off camera, and I'm going to think outside of the box for this one because I don't think we have it on the outline. I think that setting up and tearing it down is my least favorite part as well. My room is almost a, it's it's basically a jungle when it's stop, what my quote unquote stop motion season rolls around the corner. It is barely recognizable. It is a mess and it's not very helpful when you're trying to move around and take photos. A very tight space. You're working with a small set to maneuver to make your vision come true. I have a love-hate relationship with actually building the set and then a love-hate relationship with taking it all apart cuz pieces are everywhere. The floor is covered with either figures or materials that you walk around or walk on top of. Like, it's it's horrible. It's a mess. And uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, I am not very tidy. And that is a horrible circumstance to deal with when you're off camera and just trying the to get... The piles really do pile up. Yeah, dude. <laughs> tell me about it. It's not fun. It really, again, action figure boxes for one and trying to make sure that by the end of it all, your setup is clean again and making sure that it's pleasing to the eye and you're not like throwing shit around or if it's having to put figures back on shelves or figures back in boxes, accessories back in their respective containers or plastic bags. I am not a fan of setting up and tearing down of uh, sets. Not everyone can have a set that can be maintained at all times. In my past as a content creator, I would always have to set something up and then take it down. And now it's a little bit less so because I do have a much more dedicated space to work with. But even then, it's still a small space and I can't have everything set up at the same time. So I do still have time where I need to uh, set something up and then time to take it down. And same case applies with figures falling over. With that too, that also takes up time um, that you don't necessarily expect it to. So that's also a little bit of a limitation and it kind of affects your resourcefulness because sometimes you're working with certain elements that might make the figures harder to uh, stand up or uh, situate. 
Sometimes they're not able to really balance on certain diorama pieces or set pieces or tabletops or anything like that. And you kind of just have to hope for the best or tape their feet down or find another way to stick them to the ground or have a flight stand off camera. And then some people might leave it in shot and others might feel like they have to paint it out in post. And it's another thing when you talk about like trying to accomplish a certain shot. Like if you're dealing with cinematography that involves having the entire frame, let's say it's a wide angle shot or a wide shot, you have to basically show the, the a figure's entire body while not compromising its stance. And it's a lot easier to kind of cover up those flaws in in the process of, like, if it's a close-up, you don't really have to worry about things that happen from the waist down. So you can mess around and pull you your magic the tricks there. Up. Exactly. Like, literally, your hand out just slightly yeah. out of frame. Yeah. Because the last thing you want is your hand to be in frame or a finger to be in frame. And then you have instances where you want it to be a wide shot or you want it to be an overhead shot but you have movement in the frame and so you've got to finagle some stuff in order for it to look as you want it to while not giving you a horrible time working with said subjects yeah i, I gotta admit both of your answers to this question were at least for the the negatives side the least favorite side completely caught me by surprise because those were elements that i didn't even think to write down when crafting this outline so thank you for that. Uh, yeah, of course. No thank problem. you for that. I love those answers. It, it, it's just something to think about. There's a lot of time and energy that's poured into this. It's not just talent or resources. You have to have a lot of patience, obviously, with just the, the art of taking one photo at a time and slightly moving your subject before you take another photo. Mm -hmm. And also the edit process, having to painstakingly go through all those individual frames and then have to piece it all together with all the other filmmaking elements. But then you have the little things that you might not remember, like, oh, your back is going to be hurting you because you're trying to be hunched over working within a small cramped space. Or oh, if you have like, lights and really it gets too hot, hot because of the lighting. So there's a bunch of little variables like that that could be an inconvenience and might affect how you manage your resources and how you work within the limitations that you have. Or, you know, so, uh, a camera running out of battery. That's another thing. Having the camera on the charger at all times or just hoping and praying that it won't die on you. We're really doing a great job of convincing people that this is worth a shot. The point we're trying to make is that we are we complain a lot and we are divas when it comes to this thing. <laughs> it gets you to think about the people who actually work in such environments where they have to do this every now and again. And granted, the director is working on the actual film, but these guys are responsible for making it all happen. And I'm complaining on such a small scale where these guys, they get paid to do it, sure, but... <laughs> I can't, it still sucks. <laughs> it's still not fun. They're yet. really under They're pressure. The unsung heroes. What we're doing is like a Hollywood homemade hobby, in a sense. There's so many pros and cons to every single thing that you're working with in this kind of stop motion scale or form factor. So you just kind of have to uh, hope for the best and have as much fun with it as you can while also trying to create something to the best of your abilities. I kind of want to encourage those listening because... Yeah, I, I believe that is part of the reason why most people turn away from stop motion animation as a form of creative expression, because it tends to be super tedious, and it's not necessarily the most practical, it's not the most budget-friendly. It's an investment that you're not really going to make a whole lot back on right away, but either. But at the same time, it's so 
and this is coming from me who has worked with this for, I don't know, almost 10 years at this point, I have been so rewarded by the outcome of every uh, sore back or frustration that comes from making it all happen. Trust me when I say that all of what we're saying right now, all the complaints are just a, a side of it. It's not the full picture yet. But when you do get to the point where you're finally done with the edit, you are uploading it and you release it out for everyone to see, oh my god, it pays off so much. And Michael can attest to that through our collaborations too, because it's like the process of collaborations in the past, whether time constraints or just, you know, figuring stuff out, has not been the most comprehensive method to do it. But the other side is so rewarding and you have so many things to be proud of once you cross that line. And so don't be alarmed. Don't be frightened by our conversations and critiques about this craft because, yeah, it's worth Having it. a bit of a background in live action filmmaking, you kind of have more of an appreciation for what you can do on a stop motion scale versus a live action scale because you have a little bit more control over all the various elements. You don't necessarily have to work on any one schedule other than your own. You can reach out to more talents technically because you're not limited by the people that you know in person or by the means that you have in person. You don't have to work against the clock of daylight or nighttime. You don't have to work on trying to get permissions or equipment from other places. You kind of just have all of that at your fingertips. Even though it is tedious, even though it is a little bit more time consuming, and yes, there are various little pains in the process, there really is so much value to being able to have that freedom yourself. Yeah. And yeah, have that creative freedom to just kind of explore your ability to create. Even if it is on a small scale, that doesn't mean you can't do big things with it. Yeah, so. and it's not to blame anybody, part of that experience, but when you're making something at home, that's completely, I hope, I'd hope it's fully you on, on camera. And so you can't really blame anybody if it's good or bad, and you can't really uh, give credit to anyone if it's fantastic, but you. You don't have to answer to anybody because right. it's really your project through and through. It's not like you're, you're necessarily Being working dictated. with certain expectations from others other than maybe your audience if you're releasing it but ultimately right. it is really about you it's not a selfish or egotistical way of thinking it's not egocentric to say that you really yeah. have a chance to kind of foster your own talent and your own growth it's a fun exercise it's a good experience to also have in your pocket too being able to say that you've been able to work in smaller individual capacities and learn the ropes of all these different production duties, being able to film and edit and write and act and learn how to light things, learn how to set decorate, how to acquire props, um, how to shot list and storyboard, gathering materials, basically your budgeting, learning how to market your own work through trailers and promos online, social media networking and marketing. All of those different skills will help you so much in the long run if you wish to pursue a different form of filmmaking in your future. If it is completely hobby, then it's for the fun of it. You still get to be part of a community of other fan creators, and you're working with this wonderful IP that 
you're not really making any money from necessarily, but you get to still tell stories with it because you're passionate about it, because you give a damn about it. If that's something you hope to pursue, if not, at the very least, you still have this as something to always escape to. You always have this as something no one can take away from you. You will always have this work and commitment and experience, at least at one point in your lifetime. You might walk away from it eventually, but you can always look back and say, yes, I still did that. And it took a lot of time and energy and effort. And I did have to put a lot of that into accumulating resources and working within frustrating limitations. But you did it. And that's still something really cool to take away from that. I think everything we just said was far more valuable than just ranking in order from least to greatest <laughs> of different things that we enjoy. In the previous episode, to quote the wisdom of all of us from the episode with TrickShot726, it varies. It depends. There are pros and cons to literally every single part of it. You could, if you are pessimistic enough, you could find a flaw in everything. If you're optimistic enough, you can find an advantage in everything. You can find something good to reflect on. But here at Animators Assembled, on. we like to promote a balance because that's what we're all about. It varies. It depends. You might love something that I hate and you might hate something that I love. And fact of the matter is we're all just creating something to put out there for the viewing pleasure of other people. And that's what's so that's special about it. Something that's really nice about this podcast is the fact that we at least have this opportunity to reflect on our experiences leading up to this point. Yet, who knows where we have yet to go? Who knows what kind of growth we will encounter over time from now? It pays off. Yeah. With that said, um, getting resourceful can mean a lot of things, but ultimately it requires a creator to think outside the box to achieve a certain desired result. What is something that you've been able to do, like kind of like cheats? Can you name some of your favorite tips and tricks to pull off different effects that have kind of helped you in this way? I like the sentiment in the past. I've mentioned how Under the Dark Episode 1 is completely a magic trick. I don't think there is a single shot in that episode that isn't done with illusion or forced perspective. Uh, biggest example right off the bat would be that Har Dr. Harleen Quinzel figure is a seven and a half inch figure compared to the five inch Joker and prison custom that I made specifically for that episode. You have to pull a lot of camera tricks for that and illusions are so helpful. You have no idea just how much you can stretch the human eye to make them believe that something is something else. The forced perspective between those characters is something that I really, really love. Another thing in the episode that I never thought I would be able to pull off, if not for Michael, but the exterior shot of the van is driving that really from right to left. really was a magic trick, wasn't it? Yeah, you have several floating elements in that. You have, you know, the driver, you have the van itself, and then you have the street that and they're driving And all those through. had to be layered like a cake. Right. Like we had to shoot the van in one go we had to shoot the joker driver goon in a separate uh shoot how many times and did then, you film it like five-ish times i think i had three good ones and i had two really bad ones to start on top of giggles the driver for that particular sequence the uh the bucky figure with the joker makeup on top was an instagram from filter. uh joker 2019 right that was incredibly resourceful um Using an Instagram filter and shooting each image independently. Should we tell the story of how that came image. about? Well, I, I kind of want to talk about both of those things. Go for it. Bit. Yeah. I, was that going to be one of your answers that I just take one of your answers? No, no, you didn't. Okay, good, actually. good, good. Um, 
I kind of wrote this question with Under the Dark in mind. Not only the forced perspective of the Dr. Harleen Quinzel figure versus the Jesse Eisenberg Lex Luthor figure with the Joker head on top. That's pretty resourceful in and of itself, trying to take a figure from one toy line and mash it with another character from another line to do that. Uh, That Harleen Quinzel figure does not have great articulation, so she is not really sitting on a chair. Exactly. That was like the first example I had in my mind when writing this question, but the second one was the just the magic that was that van shoot. Because I, I was reading along with the script, and I'm like, wait a minute, you don't have an establishing shot. It wasn't here. even a script. It was the scene transition of, like, when uh, after it cuts from the Joker and Harley talking, and then the camera pans, we just cut immediately inside of a the interior of a van. Which you can tell it's a van, but without that establishing shot, it just looks like they're in, an, uh, in a building where an earthquake is taking place. Yeah, it looks like they're in a really dark room that's on a fault line. But with that setup... There wasn't an establishing shot. And although there was audio and the shots themselves were kind of moving to insinuate the fact that they're in a moving vehicle, you really don't have that frame of context without some kind of establishing shot. So because of that, we needed some way to do an establishing shot of a van. And we didn't have any 112 scale vans. We were looking at literally every single possible solution before it hit me. Wait a minute. This is a last resort. But I think I have some Matchbox and Hot Wheels vehicles like the really mini die-cast vehicles. And he's like, all right, what do you got? And I literally went through my collection from childhood to find a Diet Pepsi van that would work perfectly for the shot. Because he was like, so you need a van like this, right? You need a a van with hardly any windows. The the cliche white van, the kidnapper van. Yeah, this very sketchy kidnapper van. (laughs) Yeah, because you would definitely know what a kidnapper van looks like. But everyone has that image in their head. As soon as you say kidnapper van, you all know what we're talking about. So Michael was like, so you need something like that, right? And yeah, he he told me that he found this Diet Pepsi van and it had the logo on the side. Again, through the help of Deanna, because she's a lot more crafty than I am in this way. She was able to use, I think, nail polish remover to get rid of the Diet Pepsi logo. So we didn't have to do that in post. And that was resourceful enough itself using something as practical as nail polish remover to get rid of paint yeah, on like, an old die-cast vehicle. I could have easily gotten rid of that logo in post, but who wants to go through the hassle of that? Exactly. It's very difficult to shoot with smaller objects. The smaller you go in scale, the more frustrating it is. But at the same time, the bigger you go in scale, the more difficult it is to... Uh, accommodate the space and you're talking about an establishing shot that's super up close and personal right it's not even like a shot where you could hide any flaws the wheels are there and the whole van is in frame and when you shot the giggles insert or that that green screen element you had to make sure that it was lined up and you couldn't really there was no room to screw up because it was so small and every detail was noticeable And so when you have something like that, you pull every stop in order to make it work. Additionally, it could also be said that um, with the van, technically, I didn't have to actually practically animate that. I could have just taken a singular shot of the van and the wheels could have been edited to be rotating. But at the same time, that's a lot more editing work on the back end of the production process rather than just biting the bullet and trying to do it for real. And plus, with the rolling wheels actually moving, there's a little bit of a authenticity to the vehicle kind of shifting a little bit. Like, it doesn't feel like a static vehicle, like a 2D cutout 
just, oh, the wheels are moving. It actually feels like a living, breathing thing. Well, not a living, breathing thing, but like a an actual functioning right. object. It complements the, uh, the, the, the driver who's also moving around at that same frame rate so that when people are like thrown off, seeing that it's a green screen and all, it's like, okay, so I guess it's just the van and the driver filmed separately in front of a green screen. But what many people don't realize is that two of those elements are not exactly in they're the same They're not shot. in scale at all with each other, yeah. and they're a lot more difficult to work with. The same thing applies with the Joker. We could have just had him be still. It could have been just one shot. The head could have just not moved at all. But actually animating that head to turn gave that motionless still figure a living, breathing quality to it. So just that subtle motion of turning a head gives so much more to a shot. And that's a practical way to sort of utilize those resources you have and those limitations to kind of make them feel more legitimate. And with with that particular process, having to animate that one frame at a time vertically on a phone, on an Instagram filter, <laughs> and had to make sure that the filter didn't get screwed up because it was hard to recognize a plastic face. Like trying to get the really crummy... Sebastian Stan, Bucky Barnes, Civil War head sculpt to actually track with that face filter because the paint job isn't all that real. The Infinity War one has a more accurate flesh tone and it has more accurate eyes. It's a more real looking face. But I thought the greasier, less realistic looking hair paint on the Civil War one look more sadistic. look better on the filter. Plus, I thought the, the darker eyes, like the less... Since the filter was going to be covering up the skin complexion anyway, having those more stark eyes stand out a little bit more, it kind of helped the filter sort of gauge it just a little bit better because the eyes would be much more prominent, mm -hmm. even though the rest of the skin tone would be a lot harder for it to track. So having to do that one frame at a time and send each image before resetting, going back into the filter, taking another shot, and then having to individually take each of those images and import them into a video editor and then export it and then speed it up so it would move faster and then Daniel would have to fit that little element and comp it into the van. <laughs> that was very tedious, but the final result was just so rewarding. It was so Granted, cool. it's not like I, I still watch that scene and feel like I could have done better and I could have shot it practically, but in retrospect, it's such an achievement for us both because our collaborations have been littered with a bunch of technological and and digital advancements and we we've basically i don't want to say we we uh changed the game because we definitely didn't but we just we have pioneered a little bit yeah we we've tested a out a lot of things with our craft yeah who knows what you might discover when you're working in this medium you might be able to find a new trick that you exclusively can use it's really cool to pull that off it might make it a lot harder but it's doable and you might find a workaround that might be even more satisfying than finding the simple solution the obvious solution. like i say i could have done better with that exterior shot or that establishing shot but it's better to have a crappy establishing shot than no establishing shot whatsoever you know it's better to have and use what you have and do the best that you can with what you have than do nothing at all with everything in front of you. And it didn't even turn out crappy as it turns out. Like, yeah, exactly. We thought it wouldn't look good, but it turned out to be one of like the crown jewels of our collaborative career. One shot required so much time and effort, and it turned out to be something that 
even though we spent so much time on it, it was so rewarding every single time we saw it. There was just genuine serotonin pumping through my brain because it's like, damn, look at how good that turned out. I kind of wanted to touch a little bit on something from the ARG that we worked on together as well. This was one other pioneering trick that you did. This also isn't my answer either. I still have an answer on top of this. I completely, <laughs> like the ARG went over my head because I was like, well, I worked on Under the Dark for five years, so might as well talk about your magnum opus. Yeah, um, you did motion Sorry. tracking. So for those who don't know what the ARG is, uh, it is essentially just an online alternate reality game that we did for the release of Under the Dark episode one as kind of a build-up a prologue i had to do some visual effects and specialize in certain fields in order for me to elevate that experience and yeah motion tracking visual effects was one of them basically he was able to replicate the harvey dent effect for two i didn't have i did not have a two a harvey two-face figure i just had the harvey dent figure from movie masters and i was like well i have this guy and he could you know, they didn't burn Aaron Eckhart's face off in, in the Dark Knight trilogy, but they were able to make it work. Might as well use what I have via the internet and with the methods that they used. So behind the scenes stuff and they would talk about how Harvey Two-Face was made and how he was digitally manipulated in order for them to make that visceral looking monster type deal. I have I have access to how they did it. I now know how they did it. And... I should give it a shot. Yeah, I, that was a really cool effect. On the editing side of Gang Resourceful, I'm not going to say I pioneered it, but with Daredevil v. Captain back in the day, I learned how to do digital transitions and smooth like camera zoom-ins and stuff in that uh, QCut Pro video editing software. I was literally filming wide shots and my hands were completely in frame. But with the close cropping and the zooming in, I was able to hide my hands. And I was able to have the camera digitally pan around to different parts of a scene. And although I filmed it really noobishly, I designed it in a way that once you had all of the transitions applied, it would work. Because not everything can be done with a flight stand. I didn't even have flight stands at the time. So having those little digital transitions, having the camera literally follow these characters as they're fighting and falling through different situations was a nice way to compensate for having to have my hands in frame in a much wider shot context. On the more practical side, I, I just love camera work. So I talked about digital camera work on that front, but I also love shot composition and camera operating as well. And I've tried to incorporate a lot of that into my cinematography for uh, stop motion projects as well as live action projects. I like to think outside the box with how the camera fits in different spaces, and how it moves throughout those spaces, kind of like a character in and of itself. I talked about it earlier on in this podcast recording session and in the trick shot episode that we did, but I created Lego camera dollies using a Lego Harry Potter night bus and a Lego Harry Potter flying Ford Anglia. Both of those are little Lego vehicles, and I've modified the build on them so my Canon Vixia camcorder and my iPhone could fit on both of them, like little camera rigs that I can use to uh, zoom in, like push in the camera or pull back, uh, pan from left to right in a sense. Um, obviously I have circular panning through actual stable tripods, but having a side to side sort of dolly, having that camera maneuverability has gone a long way. In Nomad in particular, 
I was able to film an aerial shot uh, with the camcorder attached to the tripod, mounted to the tripod, while also filming a push-in close-up shot on the side with my phone using one of those Lego vehicle dollies. Last but not least, I kind of want to talk a little bit about uh, shot composition stuff because we were talking about it with the van shot. We were talking about it with the uh, tech innovations and stuff. Not exactly an innovation, but one of my favorite things I've ever done was utilize uh, just the basics of chroma keying in order to do various things. So with flight for Batson v. Danvers, I had to literally lay the figures down either on their bellies or on their sides and shoot from above using a chroma key background, whether it be green screen or blue screen, in order to replicate flying. I didn't have any flight stands, so I literally just had to lay them down on the backdrop and hope that I could color correct and make that work, and I did. It's not exactly the same thing, but I guess you can reference the Inception moving the little box that they built that whole contraption in order for it to look like Joseph Gordon-Levitt was, you know, falling up and down, even though it was just a rotating system. Exactly. It's all a trick. And playing around with perspective, like forced perspective or shifting the camera's perspective. So, like, there there was a shot in which uh, Shazam tried to pick up a bus in Batsby Danvers. It, it started with him on his belly, and then it suddenly shifted to him on his side with the camera above for his feet to kind of swing out from under him. And then once he was floating in air, he was back on his feet. Also using practical things that are way too big, such as, you know, we talked about the van being a really small prop and making it big. But what about making a big prop small? I used a practical deck of Uno cards and practical cards for the scene in Bats of Danvers' trailer where Shazam just picks up a deck of Uno cards and starts swiping them at uh, Carol. That was an actual deck of cards that I owned. I just plopped it on the green screen. I love everything about that. It was just, it's so character oriented and it's so character driven because it's like when Shazam throws Batman, he's like, get him Batman. In the actual movie, I thought it was a nice yeah. little reference to that. Yeah, and it was fun because Michael and I have this, uh, as a little bit of a backstory, this know you thing going on and enter the Uno cards because it's like an anagram of know you. And so... Yeah, yeah, that's where, of yeah, that's, that's where well. it started. It was it was kind of genius. <laughs> yeah, and it was also cool because in the close-up shots, I had these practical cards, and then I switched to digital images in the wide <laughs> shot that followed because I wanted them to rotate flat because they were just meme images, and I didn't want to write no you on, on one of my actual Uno cards. So I took a 2D image of that, and I was able to mix practical elements with digital elements as well. So that's another thing you can try too. So there are ways to be resourceful with your in-hand assets as well as your digital assets and trial and error, experiment with it. So <laughs> we've been talking a lot. This has been a really long episode, <laughs> but I'm enjoying every second I'm of really, it. I'm really, really great. big fan of everything we've discussed because it's like not many people know what goes into these videos. They just consume stuff, but it's nice to have that little bit of insight into how it's made how the sausage is made yeah it's like it's very the art of the trade how the sausage <laughs> is made it just soon that it happens but no one else is in the room where it happens i just love it you know it's it, it, that whole process is so intricate so intimate and so artistic i also wanted to kind of touch on the fact that sometimes shot reverse shot as something uh, something as simple as that is not as simple as that because you have a character in a set which is usually just the camera facing that way. It's kind of like a uh, a stop motion set is not dissimilar to a sitcom set 
where it's just one stage and you don't it, you're not actually in a in a house or in a building so you're going to have to move the camera around uh add some walls and cover stuff up to make it look like it's a part of a bigger setup than it actually is. There's a hot is. mess just a few degrees oh, yeah. off screen. Like I said, it's a magic trick and that's what I love about Under the Dark specifically and and what you were able to do with that hotel room setup in Nomad because that was it looks like an extension of an actual hotel. It was an empty table that using dollhouse furniture I was able to breathe life into that animation space. Originally I had chroma key backgrounds for that. I originally set all that stuff up on a green screen and I went back and I realized no, this is taking me out of it. It genuinely has to look like the hotels that Sam mentions weren't exactly five star in Infinity War was the case. So you you've gathered I all used the materials. my bare wall. Yeah. And sometimes you might like I remember way back when when I was doing Transformers Rebels, there were times where I started with green screen shots, which had a sky in it. And then when I got to the practical set, I just ditched the green screen wall thing because um, I didn't really have good green screen technology at the time. And I just had my bare walls and I had the grass carpet and I had the road carpet. There are some animators, there are some creators who remove the flight stands. They have uh, constant green screen backdrops for the sky and all that stuff. They have lighting that's set up. They have full-on dioramas. They have all these different other figures and props and vehicles in the streets. And everything is completely decked I've out. seen people use, like, a cloth goods figure with, like, a cloth cape. And they use, like, fans to make emulate the blowing of wind. And I'm like, wow, all right. That's, that's Some people neat. even film outside. Some people literally film on a street or in a like in a forest or on the grass or on the beach or like all these other places as well that wouldn't necessarily be ideal because you can't really control the elements as well. It's like you're shooting in a live action capacity, but with really small subjects in a live action environment. So some people have a bunch of different approaches while some people keep it minimalist. Like, at the same time, for the Protectabot stop motion, I just had a bunch of cardboard boxes that stood in for buildings. And that was it, to tell the story. Oh, it's a town. You can tell because there are buildings. Enough said. You can kind of experiment with how authentic you want your stop motion environment to look like, based on your resources. If you're not able to afford expensive dials or anything, don't worry about it. Try other things. Maybe you'll use figure boxes for your backdrop. It's not so much about the environment as it is the story you're trying to tell. For right now, focus on just the characters and the storytelling that you're trying to convey. With that said, let's move on to the next point. Unfortunately, I have to be a little bit of a Debbie Downer here because sometimes you might be stuck with having to settle for what you have to work with and you have to tailor your vision and adjust your expectations accordingly as a result of these inhibiting limitations. Name a time and place where you had to modify your primary plan due to your resources just not being able to match up with your original ideas. I know we touched on the van exterior shot for Under the Dark Episode 1, but that doesn't necessarily count because it wasn't even in the in original vision for an exterior shot to exist, right? So, uh, I'm going to have to... But it was necessary. Yeah, it was. We got to dig deeper for this one. Um... You need to look for one where you actually had to settle. So it's not like this question is not so much about a time where you had to think for an alternative solution and it turned out to work out really well. This is a time in which 
you had an idea and then because of different reasons you had to shift that idea into something else i can go first if you need sure by all means please do so nomad i talk about it all the time it's kind of like my stop motion magnum opus at this point Nomad was, and I've said it before, I'll say it again, it started out as a Clint Barton stop motion, a Hawkeye Ronin video. And I didn't have a Jeremy Renner head. I was looking for that two-pack, and I could barely afford it. So I had to change my concept, because it was for a contest, and I had to meet a deadline for that. And wouldn't you know it, as soon as I started work on the Captain America story instead, I found the f***ing two-pack. But that's a whole other thing. The other parts of Nomad that had to change, there are actually several. First and foremost, the Civil War flashbacks and the Infinity War tie-in. I didn't have the Civil War Iron Man or the Civil War Captain America or the Infinity War Scarlet Witch or the Infinity War Vision. I didn't have those figures, so I couldn't shoot those scenes the way I intended to. Through the help of Daniel coming in with the assist, coming in clutch I might add, I was able to make those scenes happen, but it was a little bit out of my control in the sense that had I not had that friend, I would have had to cut them completely and there would have been vital components of this film missing. Or it would have had to cut out the part where we see Scarlet Witch reacting to Nomad's entrance. Or I would have had to cut down or alter the way in which the Civil War flashback was presented. In fact, there's a way in which I'm utilizing that concept in the extended cut. My idea originally before Daniel was able to make it work was just shooting it with the Nomad figure, shooting him as is, reliving that traumatic experience, nearly killing Tony and just using an Iron Man Mark 43 because I didn't have the other armor saying, oh, well, creative liberty, whoop-de-doo. I didn't like the Russo Brothers Iron Man costumes anyway. But that was my original alternative that I almost had to settle for. I had to cut parts of the Nomad concept due to limited time, sets, and characters. So originally, Nomad was going to be a three-part thing. I was going to have Nomad's segment be part one, his trauma dealing with the fallout with Tony. And then part two would involve Natasha, Black Widow. She was going to be facing one of her solo movie characters, even though I had no reference for what that movie was going to be because it didn't come out yet. And then the third part was going to be about Sam, Falcon, dealing with uh, just the trauma of nearly reliving how his friend Riley died. It was going to be a three-part thing, but because of time, I just condensed it and I focused solely on Nomad segment and the other two will probably never happen. Hashtag release the stealth cut. But here's the thing. There were ideas I originally had. Ultimately, they wouldn't work out. But because of that, I was able to develop different ideas that might actually be more valuable and might be better in the service of this particular story, such as retrofitting the nomad reliving that Civil War Tony near fatality situation. I revamped that sequence to make it work in the director's cut. There are new characters that are now able to be featured in this project some of which I've already teased in coming attractions and others which you don't even know about yet. So there's a lot of different ways that ultimately that has been for the better. But initially, I kind of had to settle for just get rid of it. Get rid of it. Last but not least, too, there was a whole additional shot. Uh, the aerial shot and the push-in shot that I referenced earlier in the Nomad Super Duper cut. That shot is in the Super Duper cut. But you're not going to find that in the original cut because I cut that for time. 
There wasn't enough time to edit the full film with the sound effects and everything. So I ditched that shot. I ditched that whole piece of the fight choreography. You'll notice, actually, it's a continuity error. There's a dude, he was flipped over the couch on the floor, but then all of a sudden he's hanging over the edge of the couch again, as if he got back up. Because in the full film, he did get back up, and there was a whole little knife uh, kerfuffle in the full cut of that fight scene that you didn't get to see because I had to settle for the resources and the time that I had to work against. So, shiz happens, and you just kind of got to roll with it, but... Even though it might not seem like what you were hoping for in the initial going at it, in the outset later on, you might find that it was for the best and something better might result from it. Okay, Daniel, your move. Fantastic. I kind of had two answers for this, and one is a little bit more technical than it is practical. My first answer would have been that, you know, sometimes things don't work out as your original vision, and we're touching on that right now. But I do my best, this is my process, to make sure that I'm not thinking about or trying to envision certain sequences without said resources. Like, I would want to have that on hand first before I start executing anything crazy. Otherwise, I would never be able to pull off what I want to pull off. So I wouldn't want to risk losing that leg in order for me to have full, quote-unquote, creative liberty. But at the same time, you know, collaborations are real and those kind of things exist. My second answer was actually going to be because voice actors and voice acting is also a resource. And I would just want to talk about how sometimes when plans change specifically for Batman Under the Dark episode one, I know I keep talking about it. I want to talk about like the Black Ant at some point, but with Under the Dark, there were several rewrites like two weeks before its release. I had to do some last minute revisions to the script and since one of my voice actors had dropped out before the episode was released, I had to work around the lines that they already recorded. So I had to, you know, I had to rewrite the script with a new context, but still had to make that performance and those lines work specifically for the scene that I'm trying to build. And because it's a completely new scene, it kind of compromises what you could potentially pull off had that voice actor been available to record their lines or their additional content for this scene in order for me to make it what I wanted it to be. It's it's why I love Zack Snyder's Justice League. It's like one of my favorite movies simply because of how relatable that behind the scenes process was and how he had to work inside certain limitations. And I know principal photography was completed and he had an edit of the film, but he also he still messed with some stuff behind the scenes in order to fit his vision. Granted, had he been given the chance, no doubt he would have executed what he wanted to execute to the best of his ability. And that's kind of the case with not having all the resources at this point. Because of them not being there and not being able to read these lines and record these lines, and I wasn't able to find a voice actor that matched their performance in time, I had to work with what I had. And part of me wishes that I... Uh, the dialogue was a little bit different and suited the scene a little bit better. But, you know, you work with what you have, and that's what we've been talking about for this entire episode. So I think it's important to find a creative middle ground where if some things don't work, make it work. Because at the end of the day, if you want your vision out there, it'll happen. And I was also going to add that um, a good answer that you could have added was talk about the montage in the end of Under the Dark Episode 1. 
and how originally that reveal was not slated to happen in that episode. In a sense, you didn't know whether or not you would actually be able to continue this series or if people would want to see it continue. When I wrote Batman Under the Dark, I had it in mind that it would kind of play out like a Marvel Netflix show or even just a regular Netflix show where um, one episode leads to another because usually when they drop episodes, it's all of them at a time. Granted, they have structures within them that are like the three-act structure to keep you on your toes while you're watching, but my layout was kind of similar in that the cliffhanger would lead to the next episode, so you have a full arc in the episode that would tie directly into the second one were you to watch that after the fact. But since, you know, stop-motion animation as it is takes a really, really long time, that was clearly not going to work. And so Michael was kind of like, well, what if Batman Under the Dark Episode 1 was a one-and-done pilot premiere finale and what if that was the only episode to ever come out how could you make it more contained to the sense that i essentially asked the question what happens in the event this episode has to be standalone do you want to at least give enough answers for what happens within the episode itself for it to be a satisfying story in its own right or do you want to leave audiences forever guessing because in my personal opinion, when it comes to watching TV shows, there's a healthy balance between each episode being standalone as well as leading into the next. You could have a completely satisfying singular episode that could still have potential questions that you might want to ask for future episodes. But you could watch that episode as if it were a movie on its own and it would be able to exist as its own thing. Each episode in a season would make the whole season feel like a movie but each episode would feel like a scene in that movie. So in the event, Batman Under the Dark was not something that people gravitated towards or people wouldn't want to watch any more of, or for whatever reason it may be, Daniel would be unable to continue that story, you wouldn't leave the audiences left dissatisfied. You would feel like you got complete closure, yet you still kind of want more, but you're satisfied with what you got. It's a nice, healthy balance of all those different factors within an episode. It's like Batman Begins with the, uh, with like that whole film. And I know we're touching on Batman because Batman on Batman. Point is, Batman Begins has a perfect three-act structure and it's a great film. But the ending of that sets up the Joker. Now, from what I've heard, they never really planned a sequel ahead of that. So that was supposed to be like a one and done. That was it. Teasing the Joker. Because Batman Begins can exist without the Dark Knight. Frankly, that ending is pretty much perfect as is, teasing what's to come of this iteration of the character. But Christopher Nolan was like, ah, what the hell, what kind of fun would that be if I didn't continue on with this universe and its mythos? And that was basically our mindset working on Under the Dark Episode 1. We wanted to set stuff up with room for more, but it's not like it couldn't be contained as is. Like, y you can have the Harleen Quinzel Harley Quinn tease without showing Harley Quinn. The audience could have easily come up with a rest in their head as they went along, which was, you know, part of the fun. It was almost like we left the door open for history to come in, but just enough of a peep for the audience to see what we had cooking up on the off chance that, you know, this whole thing was a possibility. It's the case with most pilot episodes. Unlike what you might find on, say, Marvel Netflix Netflix's format is releasing all the episodes at once. Most TV shows make a pilot episode with the hopes that people will have enough interest in it to continue the story 
with more episodes to follow. So the pilot episode has to be completely standalone, but also tease a potential future with this story, with these characters. And that's how you know you have a good pilot episode. If the pilot episode is good enough to convince people that we need more episodes of it, then there are so many other questions that you would love to know more about with more episodes yet to come. So, yeah. <laughs> but for those wondering, yes, Under the Dark Episode 2 is in pre-production as of this moment, so worry not. It'll be not. coming out five years from now. <laughs> so, we only have two left. <laughs> we kind of talked a little bit about this earlier on, and I know for you it's still fairly similar. Uh, even though for me it's been a little bit different. What were the resource limitations you had when you initially started working as a content creator, and how did you overcome them at the time? My first stop motion had the Marvel Select figures for both Captain America and Falcon, plus some WWE figures that I had collected over the years. I didn't have any Marvel Legends, I didn't have any 112 scale specific figures to make what I wanted to make. So all I had to pull it off was a Captain America figure, and it wasn't even mine. It was my brother's, so I had to borrow it. I had to film with it really quickly so I could put it back in, into a, onto his shelf so he could display it, and made sure that I was being careful with it, because it's obviously, you know, you're on borrowed figures. <laughs> um but over, over the course of time, you get to buy new figures. So to continue that series, I was able to purchase a new Captain America, but now in the Marvel Legends scale. At the time, you just kind of have to ask around, and it doesn't really matter how, so long as it happens. Um, hopefully you're not doing anything, you're not like, you know, being cajoled into like, hey, borrow, you can borrow this, but do something like completely off the books point i'm trying to make is that if you have a vision in mind and you really want to pull it off you're going to go through everything to make sure that you're able to make it happen because whether it's impossible or possible fact of the matter is you have something you have you have to get this off your chest it's a it's a need so i could have used another like if i didn't have captain america i would have probably used one of my three three quarter inch figures to pull that off because I have a bunch of three three quarter inch Marvel Universe figures that I could have used to make a completely different story. And uh, this touches back on my point earlier. I try my best to make sure that everything that I write is serviceable through the things that I have and not at the expense of. Otherwise, again, if I'm unable to attain those items, it will never happen. So I try to, I, yeah, that's what I try to do. I, I want to make sure that I have access to the things that I want to use while also not compromising a vision. But that's where creativity comes into play. So uh, my answer for this, I, like I had to literally go back and look at like my oldest videos to just go down nostalgia lane and really remember just how different things were for me. Before I even made content for YouTube, I was just doing stop motion tests that I didn't share with anybody. Just on my dining room table and my... Uh, in my bedroom, on my bed, or on a desk, or wherever I could. Kitchen table, uh, on the couches. Like, literally every single place that I could find, I tried making little movies wherever I could. Sometimes I'd be at my uh, grandmother's house or my grandparents' house on the other side of my family. Just, like, animating under chairs or behind chairs. <laughs> just really going for it with whatever figures I had at my disposal at the time. My initial setup was a white poster board 
uh, like a, a hard cardboard poster board and a blue blanket. And if I need a bigger space to work with, I would film on my bed. Those were my first sets, and that's all I really had to work with. I had, like, Thomas the Tank Engine props, and I had Lego things that I could use for set pieces. But I didn't have a whole lot to work with other than the figures themselves. In terms of lighting, I had a lamp that I got from somewhere. I don't even know where. I don't even think I bought this lamp. I, I, I think we already had it, and I just used it. <laughs> and that was kind of, like, my first real... Those were my first stop motion setups. It was a little tricky to utilize them, especially since it was just a blue floor and white, plain, empty backdrops. And you just kind of had the characters doing whatever they were doing, usually fighting each other. I started slowly using whatever I could get my hands on to really sort of up the production quality. Outside of just buying more figures, I would try to incorporate more Thomas the Tank Engine props, Jenga blocks, Lego sets, even more. I tried using the backings from figure packaging, like the Autobot base setup that I had. Those were the cardboard backs from the Age of Extinction Transformers figures. And I just put them side by side, had a little Lego computer, had the blue carpet again. All of a sudden, bam, I had a base. <laughs> that was how it worked. And just over time, I would try to continue adding more to my production value. I would upgrade my lamp or I'd try to get... A green construction paper for uh, chroma keying purposes. Um, I would get, I would obviously get more figures to work with on the Transformers side. I would try to invest in things like I had like this grass carpet that I could put over my bed. With the Marvel figures, I, I didn't have a whole lot of them. I had Hulk first, and then I got Daredevil, then I got Cap, and that's all I had for a while. So I had to kind of pit them against each other and fight stop motions, hoping that that would work. I mean, there you have it. <laughs> That's the epitome of creativity because of whatever is at your fingertips. Yeah, I, I had like a couple of dollar store army builder figures, but like they were really crappy and they couldn't really pose around or anything. I still tried to use them or I tried to use like these Human Alliance basics army men from the Transformers Dark of the Moon toy line for uh, soldiers or little Lego or Creon minifigures uh, for human characters. I would literally just try to use whatever I could get my hands on to really sort of expand upon my storytelling and when i finally had more financial means to do it i invested in more characters on the transformer side a little bit but absolutely more so on the superhero side i really spent a lot of time like slowly and steadily just whenever i had enough money to do so uh i would try to invest in whatever i needed at the time to up my production quality uh i need more characters okay i bought more figures oh i need a new light i need more light get another lamp. Oh, I need better green screens because mine are tattered and worn. Get new green screens. Uh, oh, I want to make my dioramas look a little bit better. I would try to find either like uh, printouts, like uh, Deanna would help me with uh, constructing them with cardboard boxes and like digitally editing them in a like slideshow as cheaply as possible, construct effective sets, finding old dollhouse furniture, purchasing that kind of stuff, purchasing little props for 112 scale in addition to the figures. And then I invested in a laptop computer with video editing software that I could actually use on the computer instead of on the device I was also shooting with. I eventually redesigned my studio space, uh, my bedroom space. I got a loft bed, so I literally had the bed lifted up so I could utilize the space underneath for filming setups, which I'm currently sitting under to record this. Uh, I have a new desk right now that I just invested in. I have new action figure shelves to 
put my figures on because I can't hide them all in a bunch of boxes that take up space. So I'm constantly trying to, whenever I can afford to, just, oh, I need new characters, boom. Here's the investment in that. Oh, I need new equipment. Boom, there's the investment in that. Oh, I need to revamp my resources in terms of space. Boom, I would do that. I definitely tried over the course of time to make the most out of the least. Really try to stretch every single means to an end in order to get the best end result that I possibly could. And this is the last question on the outline. I'm just going to kind of tie it into this while I'm still rambling. Do I think I made the right decisions ultimately? Or would I do things differently in hindsight? Yes and no. I was and I still am limited by my financial situation and my physical workspace uh, whenever I approach my work. You know, maybe part of me is kind of like kicking myself for not investing in a DSLR camera or more lights and more sets rather than so many characters to work with so early on. But Ultimately, I have a lot to work with now more than ever. And just all the opportunities that I could potentially have with these characters, with these stories. I made the coming attractions trailer because I wasn't sure what I was going to do after Nomad and after Bassavy Danvers. But that video is a testament to the fact that I'm not done yet. There are still plenty of more stories left to tell. And I'm eager to tell them whenever I get the time and the chance to do so. We... 100% encourage you working within your limits and encourage that you get creative within certain boundaries that you might have or certain situations that might limit you from creating what you want to create. But we're also not asking you to settle because if you have the opportunity to improve and evolve your tech or your equipment or your materials, please do so. If you're consistent in the way that you were yesterday, you're not really going to ascend and do anything different or do anything people are necessarily going to have huge takeaways from. So don't stay there. If you can be greater, be greater. There's a healthy balance between focusing on what you have and focusing on what you lack. There's still plenty that you could potentially do with what you currently have, and you could still have your eyes set on where you can go from there. There are still plenty of things that you can look forward to, uh, and there are hopefully means for you to be able to acquire additional means to do what you want to do. So if you have a limited amount of things, try your best to come up with something that will work within those means, whether it be limited time, limited tech, limited equipment, uh, uh, characters, figures, sets, props, all the fancy schmancy shit. Focus on what you can do within those constraints because that can help you tell better stories, more focused stories. But also don't be afraid to look beyond. You might need more figures. You might need more sets. You might need more tech. Or you might need something else that we may not have even mentioned. Who knows? We are not the end-all, be-all here. We are just talking from our personal experiences. Once again, your mileage may vary. What we say might not work for you. But hopefully you can at least take away what we're saying in the hopes that Maybe it might work for you. At least you have the chance to hear us out and try it out for yourself. And if you're struggling with something, there are people who have most likely experienced what you're struggling with, and those are the best people to reach out to and hear from. Whether or not you take their advice is a whole nother story, but hey, we're here. At least you have the chance. Yeah. And what better way to do that than have a server or a location that just so happens to be the Amir's Assembled Discord server 
where you can actually make those connections with other people who might have been in the same place as you, who might have already had to go through what you might be going through right now. What we hope to do, Daniel and I, when we set out to do Anmares Assembled, not just the podcast, but as the server overall, is we wanted a space for community and collaboration within that community. You might not know what you can do with your resources, but maybe you can talk to someone else who might have ideas for you. Maybe you have a certain strength in one capacity and someone else can compensate for what you might lack. And it's perfectly okay to admit if you lack something. It's perfectly okay to admit the fact that you might not have the resources that you would hope to have to do what you want to do. And frankly, your goal is not to be perfect at everything because people are always going to be better at you in a lot of aspects. You might excel at something, you might fail at something really horribly, but nevertheless, there is a group out there that is willing to help you out with those issues and are capable of making your vision come to life in the way that you want it to because we aren't there to compare each other or see what we lack or what the other person has over us, but what we can do together in order to build and create something far beyond what we even initially expected. So that's what we we're know promoting. this can work because we've gone through it ourselves. Daniel and I have helped each other out with the projects that we've hoped to make. We've literally been through this. And what we wanted to do with Anmares Assembled was to create a space where others can do that too. Because we're all different puzzle pieces and we're just trying to complete each other. You're trying to see the bigger picture. And for now, if you can't see it, you're still on your way. You know, when you're when you're making the wrong decisions, but in retrospect, they might be the right decisions, you don't know that you're making the right decisions at all. You think in the moment that it sucks or it's rough, and maybe there isn't a best sell for you because we're still, every day is a work in progress and so are you. Hopefully, you'll see that even the trips that you made along the way served you in the best way possible because you won't know how to walk properly if you don't fall. So With all of that said and done, the invitation is out there and it's open for you to join us and connect with us in the Animators Assembled Discord server. Links are available. Feel free to click them. No worries if you don't want to join, but it will always be open for you if you do. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Thank you for hearing our voices for too long. Too long. Um, we're, we're grateful for your attention and your being here because uh, it's way more appreciated than you would expect. And so much more gratitude goes into that than you think. So thank you. Feel free to uh, connect with us through our social media handles. They are available on the YouTube version of this on screen, as well as the description below. If you're listening through other platforms, we do have a link tree where you can connect with us individually, as well as through the Animators Assembled Instagram and Discord server. So feel free to hit us up if you aren't sick and tired of us by now. Uh, but yeah, with that being said, we need a closeout. I have a perfect closeout, Michael. Uh, okay. Because we were talking about ingenuity, I thought that we could play another game, but now we will be limited with single word sentences that would kind of build up to a larger story of how Project Stealthabot came to be and then close it out oh, to God. where we are now. <laughs> oh, <no>. Okay, <laughs> so uh, I'll let you start with the first word because I thought uh, what? you were the kind of person to want to do that. Fine. There were two dumbasses. Who connected through Instagram. They created Nomad.
you now listen to us on a podcast because they figured why the hell not (laughs) cut the check